Hello, and welcome to As Yet Untold, a podcast that allows the space for deep conversations on individuals and topics you may think you already know everything about, but in fact, you don't. My name is Javez Siddiqui, and I am the host of this podcast. I'm also the president and CEO of the Hunt Institute, an education policy organization founded by four-term North Carolina Governor Jim Hunt. Today, I'm so pleased to be welcoming the first Hispanic female governor, as well as the first female governor of New Mexico, Governor Susana Martinez. While governor, she turned the half billion dollar budget deficit she inherited into a $2 billion surplus by the time she left office eight years later, all without raising taxes. Yes, that's correct, without raising taxes. Governor Martinez has earned her place as an education governor with an impressive list of accomplishments while in office. The governor raised the salaries of teachers and significantly increased funding for and participation in pre-K programs and other early childhood education initiatives. Graduation rates also increased by 11% during her tenure. Governor Martinez is a member of the advisory board for our Hunt Kane Leadership Fellows Program, and we're truly thankful for her guidance and her wisdom in, in that role. Governor, welcome. It's an honor to have you here today. Thank you, Javade. It's wonderful to be with you. Governor, I'd like to start out by asking you to tell us about your childhood, your family history. I understand you are the great-granddaughter of a Mexican revolutionary general. Yes, I am. Um, I did not know uh, very many members of my father's family, but my father, as I grew older and he grew older, was uh, really interested in his um, heritage and his family. He didn't know his father either. He was abandoned as a young child. Uh, my dad was, and so were his four siblings. And so, but he wanted to know about the family. And that's when we learned that my great grandfather was a general in uh, the Mexican Revolution with Pancho Villa. Um, and he was one of his top advisors in reference to the revolution. Um, I am one of three siblings. Uh, total. Uh, I have a brother, a sister, myself. My uh, brother has passed away from ALS. And I have a mom and a dad. My mom was always uh, had to work because as a family, we lived paycheck to paycheck. Um, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And in those days, uh, when someone, you know, a mom had a baby, she went back to work if she had to work um, two weeks later. And so my dad was a deputy sheriff and he was also in the Marines and was a boxer. He's a three-time champion for the state of Texas in the Golden Gloves. And so I think it's in my being to be someone who fights for others. Um, my sister is special needs. Um, she has her and is also developmentally delayed. And so she's like a five-year-old. Uh, but she, as I always say, she's my constant five-year-old. I'm her legal guardian. And I've had her now 15 years uh, since my mom passed away. It was something that we never discussed that I would take her care of her. However, it was an absolute understanding that that's what was going to happen. And so to this day, she is with me. And throughout all the time I was governor, she always thought um, every party or event that was at the residence, um, at the governor's residence, that it was an event for her. And so we let her think it because it just made her happy. Uh, that's a great story. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting into that part of your life uh, as, as well. Uh, but 
staying with the flow here, you um, went on to receive your degree in criminal justice, uh, then completed your uh, law degree and became a prosecutor. What, what about that path? What, what drew you to that career path? You know, I initially, when I was a freshman in high school, I remember I had um, two amazing teachers, uh, Mrs. Ross and Mrs. Smith, um, biology and English teacher. And she gathered a, a group of girls that met on a Saturday and we were going to, you know, talk about careers and things like that. And I wanted to attend. So I did. And I remember one of the first questions of the uh, teachers to a group of us was, where do you want to be in five years? And I remember thinking, I want to go to the spring dance. I need to sew a formal dress and I hope to have a date. I can't even begin to think about what's going to be in my life in five years. But they made us think about it and said, okay, you're going to be out of high school. Where are you going? Where are you going to work? Are you going to have a vocation? Are you going to go to a two-year college, college at all, college? What is it you want? And I enjoyed watching the debates. And they were, I thought, I think back then they were real debates, not the kind of thing that you stand in a room these days and the congressmen and women stand in a room all by themselves and just give speeches. Um, but it would, I love the debate of a subject, you know, and that's how you weed out what's good and bad about, you know, a policy that you're trying to push. And I thought they were, they had to be lawyers. Keep in mind, I was the first to go to, um, school after college uh, to become a lawyer. My brother was the first in my extended family to go to college. And so I, I really didn't know the real world as far as what you needed to do to have a career. Um, And so I thought they're lawyers, I'll be a lawyer. I went to law school and continued to the debate. Uh, As a lawyer, you're always in a debate um, and arguing issues back and forth. And so um, I thought United States Senator is what I wanna do. Um, And I uh, ended up first at the district attorney's office because of course I had to start working as soon as I left law school. And when I left law school, um, I ended up the DA's office as I thought an initial job. Um, I was introduced to three little girls. They were four, five, and six. Um, They were cousins and sibling. Um, And it turned out these little girls were given to me because I was the only female in the office and was told, find out if what they're saying is true. And they had been three little girls that had been molested by their father, grandfather, boyfriends of mother, um, every uncle, uh, every boyfriend. I mean, it just went on and on. And that's when I realized I really don't know. I may have graduated from law school, but I really didn't know how the real world worked. And so I started to educate myself even further on how do I speak to little kids about the worst experiences of their life. And it was so powerful and meaningful when you were able to unravel things for little kids. And keep in mind, I always had that consistent five-year-old living in my home. And so I I knew how to speak five-year-old very well. But then I had to learn how to speak about some really tough subjects. And I I really wanted to do this job so badly um, that I did it for 25 years eventually running for the office of the elected district attorney. Uh, if it, it was 
one of the best jobs ever. And then I ran for governor. And so um, doing the district attorney office job for me was so rewarding to help stop physical and sexual abuse of children and to hold people accountable for for hurting and killing those children. Um, and, And certainly figuring out how do I help giving resources to these folks, to these little ones to, to try to put little pieces of their life back together because they don't always, you know, it, it doesn't come back at the end of the whole um, prosecution of a case that, that things are fine, they're not. Uh, and how do, how do we help them along the road uh, to be successful somehow uh, and try to help them with what they've, they've gone through. Well, I was going to ask you about what drew your interest in running for office, but let, let's while you were as uh, working as a young prosecutor, you were actually called to testify against your boss, which you you ended up doing uh, and knowing the fighter and you did, does not surprise me learning that about you. Know, you. Uh, but it ended up costing your job. I'm sure countless uh, folks, employees and certainly women, especially young women, uh, probably will be able to identify with that. Looking back on it, uh, how difficult was it for you to make that decision to testify? You know, it it was not difficult for me to do. Uh, understanding, I was I was living in a paycheck to paycheck household too. Now I was married, um, and minus one paycheck was going to be tough. Uh, but I was in a profession where you're supposed to tell the truth, and I received a subpoena. And so I was court ordered to attend and I was not going to get up there and save my behind uh, for the sake of what I have um, you know, been in law for, which is the truth and justice. And so I remember giving it to the subpoena to my boss and um, he was newly elected and I did not support him. And so that might you know, have had a little bit of something to do with it. So I handed it to him. Uh, four hours later, he fired me. And so I stood there saying, okay, um, I'll figure this out. Showed up the next day, I testified, I testified truthfully. It was for an employee who had been uh, dismissed, uh, you know, without grounds for his dismissal. And I just wasn't going to save my neck for some, you know, and and at the end of the day, uh, let someone down just because I didn't have the guts or the courage to tell the truth. I remember taking out my retirement. Uh, I had seven years built up of retirement and I had to take it out so that we could survive until I got another job. And um, that's when I decided I was gonna run against him. The DA that fired me and I beat him um, by a landslide. And it was very rewarding to go back into that office. Oh, I, I'm sure you had a big smile on your face. <laughs> uh, so let's let's speak about your 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 run. Uh, I understand you were a Democrat for many years before you ran for the district attorney. Will yeah. you share a little bit about uh, your story about what made you dis, uh, decide to switch parties? Sure. Um, when I was uh, I was born and raised in El Paso, and so for when I was first able to uh, vote, I registered as a Democrat. But I registered as a Democrat because my parents were Democrats. No other reason. Um, it just, you know, the family just registered the Democrats and all the cousins by the dozens registered as Democrats. There was no real thinking about how I registered. Um, uh, and then I moved, graduated from law school in Oklahoma, went to, uh, New Mexico, was a prosecutor and was already talking about 
year seven about running against the, the guy that uh, um, had fired me. There were two leaders in the Republican party who came to me and my husband and said, uh, we wanna have lunch. And I knew there was a party switch coming here. So I talked to my husband and I said, let's go to lunch. It's probably gonna be a free lunch. So we're gonna be really nice. Um, they're from the Republican party and you know we're just gonna listen. And then we're gonna say, thank you very much and pie out, gotta go. Um, but it was really a very interactive conversation. They didn't ask us uh, anything about being a, a Republican or a Democrat. They asked us questions about what we believed in. What did we as, as individuals believe in in reference to, uh, for example, education and our children? I dealt with delinquent children for all of my career as a prosecutor. So up to that point, I knew the deficits of kids. And so what do we believe about choice and ability for parents to say, hey, my kid's not learning in this school, but you know, a, you know, a half a mile down the road, there's another one that they're really doing well. What did I think about the second amendment and, and how strong did I feel about that? How did I feel about you know, holding people accountable? Um, a variety, a whole list of things, you know, welfare. How did I, what did I think about welfare? Is it a hand up or is it a way of life? Um, is this something that we put into the, uh, our systems to help people when they were having tough times? Or is it just something that becomes generational because we're not giving people tools to then learn to fend for themselves? So after a conversation, they neither, they neither asked us to become a Republican. We never mentioned the word conservative. We never mentioned the word liberal. We never mentioned any of that. We said, thank you very much. We got in the car and I remember turning over to my husband and saying, I'll be damned, we're Republicans. <laughs> because I knew the answers that we just given. And so we, I had about a year and a half before I was gonna run for DA. And I said, are we gonna be true to ourselves? Or are we going to stay Democrat? Because in the county I was going to run, it was um, three to one. We were outnumbered. Republicans were outnumbered three to one. So big Democrat county. So I had a lot of minds to change to at least cross over periodically to vote for, for the right people, including me. Um, and so I, we went in. We thought my husband and I thought we could quietly go into the county clerk's office registers Republicans and that nobody would notice. And then it was on the front page of the newspaper that we had become Republicans and it was okay. Because the kind of conversations that those leaders in the Republican party had with me, I had with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, and saying, let's talk about what we want out of a district attorney. What do you want out of a district attorney? Not a Republican, not a Democrat, what kind of, of justice, true and honest justice, do you want from coming from the DA's office? Um, and there, that allows you to cross over. I had lots of people telling me, I can't change. My grandmother is going to roll over in her grave. And I said, I'm not asking you to change parties. I'm asking you to just choose the best person to do the job. I said, even Republicans have candidates that aren't very good. And so we're both stuck with sometimes candidates that aren't very good. And that's how I ended up winning by 60, uh, winning 60% of the vote 
when we were so outnumbered as Republicans. Yeah, that's very impressive. But that gets to the sort of grassroots getting to know the voters, something that seems to be missing today in today's politicians. Oh, yeah. Um, Speaking of today's politicians, uh, I wanted to shift the conversation to uh, Kamala Harris. She just became the first female vice president of the United States, in addition to the first Black and Indian American vice president. As I mentioned in your intro, uh, you have a pair of firsts yourself as the first Hispanic female governor in the United States and the first female governor of New Mexico. What unique challenges did you face as a result? Well, you know, I was also the first female elected DA in the state of New Mexico in 1986. Um, uh, I'm sorry, 19, uh, 1996. And 98% of the population that I worked with with law enforcement were men. Uh, most of the lawyers were men. Um, and so I knew I had to work harder. I knew I had to prove myself. I shouldn't have had to, but I knew I had to. And I did. And with that, I learned their respect. I earned their respect. I earned um, the, the, the fact that they knew I, what, I was, what I was about um, and that they could work with me. And when they were wrong, that I could show them or teach them how the law really is so that that same mistake isn't made again. When I was elected the first female governor of New Mexico and the first uh, Latina uh, governor of uh, the United States, I didn't find as many of those challenges. Um, I hope people don't vote for me because I'm a woman or because I'm Hispanic. I hope they vote for me because I have really good ideas. I make promises and I fight like hell to follow those promises, to, to make them come true. I don't say one thing to run for office and do another thing when I'm in office. And so they know who they're voting for. Um, I want people to elect me because I, I, I'm in, hopefully they see that I'm smart. Uh, I follow through, I get into the weeds. I enjoy that. Um, I'm, I'm a good communicator with people in order to understand from them what, what, is, what their ideas are, from me, what my ideas are, and how do we make this be the best for those that we serve because at the end of the day we're public servants and you know i congratulate vice president kamala harris um she has you know broken another glass ceiling which is amazing um but i hope that it is the ideas and um bringing truly multitude of ideas together to be successful uh, that then at the end of the day like me i just happen to be a woman and I just happen to be Hispanic. Well said, absolutely. Well, we've had you uh, engage in several of our uh, hunt programs, uh, education-based focus programs. Uh, you also made education a significant focus of your administration over your time as governor. What, what was the impetus? What made you decide to focus in on education? Well, you know, growing up um, as a very young girl, uh, I was probably a little girl, eight years old, nine years old, when we were latchkey kids. And so um, I took care of my sister while my mom had to go to work, my dad had to work. Um, and so as latchkey kids, I quickly learned, of course, my sister didn't know how to read, write, do math, um, you know, basic skills. 
And then I get into becoming eventually, yeah, and I was also a volunteer for all of the Special Olympics and for, so I was surrounded around that special needs community for a very long time, but they could learn. They went to a school and they learned um, as much as they could. And, and that, those were things that I felt every day they learned something new. It may not be math or science or, or how to read, but they learned new lessons. Then I go and become a prosecutor and I am head of the juvenile justice department. So kids that are delinquent and are doing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing, they couldn't read. Just basic bottom level reading and they're in some trouble. And I thought, how do they get all the way to being 15 years old and no one caught this kid? No one figured it out that this kid could read or no one knew enough to know he didn't or didn't care enough and just shuffled this kid along to the point that the child ended up maybe dropping out, getting into trouble. And so I really realized there are a lot of these kiddos that we're leaving behind. And by leaving behind, I probably shouldn't use that word. It's we're pushing ahead into the next grade and the next grade and the next grade without having the skills necessary to be moved on to that next grade. I even developed a small little school at the district attorney's office. We had a conference room that we didn't um, use very often. I said, we're gonna work with a school district. We're gonna bring some teachers that can do multiple grade level teaching. And they're gonna all have their computer set up here. And we're gonna teach these kids that are delinquents and have committed crimes, pay their restitution, do all the things they're supposed to, but we're not gonna shuffle them through the criminal justice system. We're going to help make sure that they go through a system of education and then bring them to the level that they need to be so that they can then go back into public school. I remember one kid, he was just, he loved basketball. He was a great basketball player, but he was flunking and he couldn't play on the team. And so how did we incentivize him to do the work and be you know, really committed so that he go back to that basketball team in the high school that he was in so that he could play basketball for his team. And he did, he went back, um, he did really well and he was a, an all-star great kid basketball player. But you know, I just thought I have at least this group of kiddos that I can do something about if I can partner with a school I can't do it for all kids because I don't have that authority as the district attorney. Um, and so that led everything over when I became governor and saying, okay, now where are we gonna put our money? Where it really matters in helping those kiddos that can't read, making sure they stay in school 20 extra days if they need enough time to get into the next grade. Do they have any kind of leads to read? Some after school programs to make sure they're reading. Where are we putting money in pre-K? Where are we putting money where, I mean, if you have a you know, Spanish speaking family and they're trying to teach in English and you don't read English, how do you help that family? Well, you have to focus your dollars into that situation. And a lot of times we just throw money at the wall without any kind of accountability. It's, is it working? And how do we figure that out? We measure, is this kid's learning ability growing? Are we, is this child now not just, you know, supposed to be at the third grade level, but is really at two years and two months? 
Well, and it, does it jump up to two years and six months, eight months, eventually being a third grade reader in the third grade? But you have to assess. I mean, how do I know you're a good employee? Well, we assess employees. We assess everything. How do we assess a good waitress? How do we know how much tip we're going to give that waitress? We assess the service. So we have to assess kiddos to see how they're doing. And then we also have to look at teachers. How do we look at teachers and say, do you need some help? Do you need a teacher's aid to help you? Because you have some challenging kiddos in your classroom. You can't do it all because they're at different age levels in reference to their education. So where do I need to put the money in your school? Because this is a special need for your school, but may not be in another school that has the ability to you know, really do a better job. How do we do principals mentoring principals, teachers mentoring brand new teachers that are coming in the system that have never done a, um, uh, a, a planning, you know, planning their day. They've never done that before. And now all of a sudden you're on your own, you've got a degree. Well, college is fabulous for analytical thinking and doing other things, but it doesn't necessarily teach you how to do the job itself. And so our mentors are really very helpful to make sure that our kiddos get caught early when they're falling behind so that they stay in school instead of dropping out because they're so embarrassed that they can't do the work that other kids are doing. Well, that leads me to a question I wanted to ask. Uh, given this sort of state of affairs, politically speaking, and, and a lot of the folks, uh, maybe teacher unions, teacher associations, some of the you know classroom teachers have kind of gotten burned uh, over the years about some of this accountability movement and maybe some folks that are supportive of assessments and accountability allowed the conversation to get too far connected to too deeply connected to uh, teacher uh, the value of individual teachers uh, where we are right now with this pandemic and the suspension of annual tests last year and looks to be you'll see another suspension of testing this year uh, folks that are believers in the accountability movement, uh, and I think about President uh, Bush oftentimes and Margaret's Secretary Margaret Spellings, this idea of you know uh, uh, the low expectations of soft, soft big soft bigotry of low expectations, and the whole purpose was to be able to shine a light on some of these students with disabilities, low income students, uh, black and brown students that maybe were being marginalized uh, either. Consciously or unconsciously, we, you know, that debate is really here nor there for the question. How do you help folks or how would you try to encourage folks to reconcile the importance of having some tool to determine a child's growth uh, or, you know, real learning? And is it important to attribute that growth to assign that growth to an individual sort of valuation of a teacher? You know, you you said the word value of a teacher. I had two teachers that stood out beyond all my other teachers, you know, exponentially, who started to form my future. Um, I, I kind of knew a little bit of what, what I wanted to do, but they, they were a huge influence. They are, they were enormous value of a teacher to me. And we all went to school and I mean, we can't kid ourselves. When we went to school, we knew who were good teachers and we knew which one said, you know, come in, open to chapter 12, 
read chapter 12, and when the bell rings, get out. I mean, we knew who engaged us, and we knew who didn't. We knew who was there and who really wasn't there. When everyone in every workplace is being evaluated by whether it be their customer, and these are kiddos are the customers, and the kiddos are neither Democrats nor Republicans, at the end of the day, they'll get to decide that someplace else um, and years down the road. But the customer, are they getting everything that they deserve from that teacher or from the administration and the system to help them be at grade level or to get or improve constantly? Uh, I understand that, you know, it was always, are you proficient? Those were the words that were key years ago. Are you proficient in the third grade? Well, some are and some aren't. So if you're a second grader in the third grade, are you progressing? We measured progress as well. And so that meant the value of the teacher was very important because that third grade teacher did not receive that second grade reader or student and create that level of learning. That happened before that teacher. And so how could that one teacher receiving that child be to blame? They're not. That, that child got shuffled somewhere else, someplace else, another state maybe, moving a lot, whatever the situation may be. Um, you know, even at home, not doing homework and all those other things. How do we now help that teacher? We have to put our money where our mouth is. And I understand you, what the unions are, they're about the grown-ups. They're about the conditions of their workplace. They're about the hourly wage. They're about, you know, the hours that they work. Do they get an extra hour in order to plan their day and plan this, the schedule and all that business? It's about the grown-up. The, the parents and the kiddos as customers, what they care about is, am I learning and am I staying together at the same level as everyone else is supposed to be or better. And who's helping me get there? I think one of the worst stories ever is, you know, I would get kids that were poor. Kiddos in New Mexico, of course, they're 45% Hispanics, 12% um, Native American. Um, they're stuck in some failing schools and nobody, does anything about it. I tried to close several schools who had F grades, the school graded F five years in a row. And the principal had the guts to say, oh, well, this was kind of a surprise. Um, you caught us off guard. And I was like, five years, I caught you off guard? You had an F five years and you did nothing. You wouldn't produce plans or I'd give you more money if it was going to be implemented properly. Shuffle principle, whatever it is that needs to happen. I'm not out to fire anybody, but I'm certainly not out to keep people in places and positions that keep failing our kids. Where are those voices for the kiddos that are poor or of color that will consistently fail in a failing school? Where are they? Well, I was hoping to be that voice into making sure all kiddos got the same amount of money or more if they were second, uh, you know, English was their second language, came from poverty. If they were kiddos that needed extra help, I was willing to put my money where my mouth was and I did. And we raised the bar 
every year because it was pretty low when I started. And 11% more kiddos graduating at a higher bar within eight years was astronomical. And that was history. We've never had that many kiddos graduate from high school at a higher bar. Yeah, I, I mentioned that the uh, introduction of your, uh, your introduction. I think that is one of the hallmarks of your administration, your tenure as governor. Um, you mentioned uh, the principal and, you know, five years of being in F school. Uh, and we also talked about your, you know, your commitment and your investment uh, signaled by your support of uh, during your budgets with early education. At what point, when a principal, you know, welcomes a kindergartner, uh, or let's go to let's go to middle school. My, my favorite examples of middle schools. I'm a former middle school principal, so I know when I used to get sixth graders and they'd come from five different elementary schools. In uh, one elementary school, I'd I'd have to hear from parents. Why is my kid coming to your school and your your teachers are having them write a three paragraph essay? They were writing five paragraph essays in fifth grade, and then you know you have another elementary school that had a larger uh, population of uh, low income students. And, you know, the challenges are what, you know, we, we all know them to be. Uh, they were writing one paragraph essays in fifth grade. And so our teachers in sixth grade, well, let's get them writing three paragraph essays. And so that is sort of that sort of teaching to the middle. Nobody wanted to name it then, but when you have that challenge and you have these kids that you inherit, they can they come to K-12 from places and spaces that are not the same. Yeah. So how do we evaluate how do you evaluate that, that sixth grade teacher that has, I refer to it as the FedEx effect. Cause I remember when my superintendent used to come to me, he said, well, what's why are your scores so low? You have 75% is sixth grade uh, grade on, on, on grade level reading. And so I went and dug into the data for all the elementary schools where they weren't the end count where they didn't have the end count. Cause you know, back then it was the end count. You had to have 50 students to make it a subgroup if you recall. And so, well, they didn't identify as a low-income population. So there's only 13 students in poverty in that fifth grade at this school. But when they all came here and FedEx dropped them here, we put together an end count and subgroup was born. And so these kids have actually been struggling for five years. Yep. We just found out because the end count. And so that, you know, obviously that has now manifested in many different ways. But how do you reconcile that for a principal and for a teacher uh, and and what role does government have to invest early and earlier? You know, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. I came from a Catholic school. My parents uh, pinched pennies to send my brother and I to Catholic school. Strict. Um, we, we, you know, I mean, we were, we were learning at a click form. I mean, we were just going, going. And I went there from kindergarten to fifth grade. They built a new junior high. Uh, right behind my house, uh, where it used to be a cotton field, and they built a new junior high, and I begged to go to that junior high. And when I walked into that junior high from a law, from coming from a Catholic school, I went, holy cow. What? It was shocking. The behavior, number one, that took place in the hallways. Number two, I was two years ahead of all the other students. We were writing things, and especially doing math, we were doing times tables. In the sixth grade, I said, I, I learned that a long time ago. Is there, there was nothing challenging for me 
because I had learned it way back when. So reverse that. And if you're coming from a school that is higher performing and all of a sudden you put it into a school because you're coming in from different schools into a junior high and you're at the bottom from, let's just say 30, 40, 50% of your school. It doesn't matter the percentages, it is a student. And so you think, how do I move this child forward? Well, that's where you start to separate the, you, you, gotta, you gotta draw a line at one point though. This kiddo is at this place right now in math and English and you know, whatever it may, the topics are, science. This is where this kiddo is as they are walking into this grade. So we have a way of measuring and who do we move these kiddos in this cohort to shuffle them over to a different teacher to then help because they, because they're super teachers. There's some really good teachers that are really doing some great things and let's, let's acknowledge it and saying, how do we get them to move them up in English or in math or in science or in reading so that they understand the material and then slowly moving them back into the grade that the, in the classroom grade that they're supposed to be in. It may not take a year. It may take some summer school, but we have to be able to separate kiddos. You can't lump them all in. Those really, you know, kiddos that surpass everybody else because they're just, they just do. And those that are really suffering from not getting caught. And so pre-K, yes, you've got parents that want to send their kids to pre-K. And you have parents that say, I will do that. I will teach them the alphabet. I will teach them colors. I will teach them how to use crayons and color in the lines and do all the things in language and using words and doing all those things. And then there are some that parents are working two jobs, single parents, they, or they're, they're kiddos that are in the system. You know, they're, they're, they're foster kids and moving around a lot, different schools. So yeah, uh, pre-K absolutely is necessary so that when they're walking in, they know those basic things, just like everybody else. And so we, I think I quadrupled the um, amount of money that went into pre-K. Well, thank you for those reflections. Uh, and it speaks to one of the reasons that I really followed and tracked your time as a governor. But one thing when I first met you in person, um, I learned about you and you led at the onset of this conversation was about your older sister. Uh, you are the legal guardian of your older sister who has cerebral palsy. How has having a family member who is developmentally disabled shaped your views and policy supports? Um, you know, I have my sister and I have a, a first cousin and a second cousin, um, all three special needs. Um, and, and, and as you grow up, you, you start to realize that um, there are deficiencies of being able to read or write or those sorts of things. So it certainly teaches you a lot of compassion, um, but it also gives you the lesson of they continue to learn every day in life. They may not learn to read and they may not learn how to write, uh, but they're learning something, you know, just in life. Um, a funny story, my sister, um, we don't have our restaurants open here in New Mexico, but she does know, um, see the governor, the new governor on um, TV and, and reflects every time she sees her, she'll say, that lady doesn't open the restaurants. And I thought, well, how do you know who that lady is? Well, she catches enough information that, that she's a decider of whether or not we have restaurants. 
and restaurants are very important to my sister. And, and she makes me laugh because it's like, you think you get it or they're not understood that she's the governor. And so she has the ability and the authority uh, and that she's making these decisions. And then she expresses her feelings about it. Um, but they don't stop learning. But at the same time, it leaves a soft spot where you guys, I mean, you, you have to be compassionate growing up. At one point, she didn't walk for two years. After I was born and I started walking, then she started walking. When I started to speak, then she started to speak. Um, and eventually then I surpassed her um, in some of those skills. So learning and their inability to learn or learn to only have a certain capacity, you know, led me to be more aware of kiddos that had special needs and how do we meet their special needs um, and blending them into the schools these days. Um, they didn't used to do that when my sister was in school. All special needs kids went to one particular school. Um, and, and now they, they don't stare at special need kids like they used to stare at my sister. Um, that was the one thing that annoyed her to no end that people saw her as different, um, and how mad she would get at that. Um, and so we've come a long way. Um, do we have more to do? Of course we do. Um, but, um, you know, she, she lived in the residence with me, like I said before, and she thought she was queen of the ball and, and we let her think it. Uh, that's, a, that's actually a great way to wrap up our conversation. And indeed, we have come a long way, uh, and yet we have so far to go. Um, Governor, thank you so much for taking time to talk with, with us today. Uh, really appreciate you and your leadership. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us. To learn more about the Hunt Institute, please visit us at hunt-institute.org. Until next time, I'm Javed Siddiqui.